Next Chapter Podcasts. Hi, this is Sally Kate Holmes, Managing Director of Next Chapter Podcasts, here to tell you about a pretty cool new offering from our friends at Apollo Podcasts. You can now find the play on podcasts on Apollo Plus, a creator-owned platform where every subscriber helps audio fiction creators such as us. You can listen ad-free, early access to exclusives, behind-the-scenes, supercuts, and more on Apollo Plus. On top of all that, 70% of the revenue on Apollo Plus goes directly to creators. Join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcasts app or by going to apollopods.com. Hi, my name is Michael Goodfriend, and I'm the executive producer of the Play On Podcasts. Josh Wilder is an acclaimed playwright who's known for captivating storytelling and innovative approaches to theater. He was born and raised in Philly, uh, discovered his passion for writing at an early age, and pursued it with unwavering determination. He graduated from Carnegie Mellon with a degree in acting, and then went on to earn his MFA in playwriting from the Yale School of Drama. His works explore a wide range of themes that delve into the complexities of race, identity, and social justice. They've been staged at renowned theaters across the entire country, including the Kennedy Center, the Public Theater, the Guthrie, and he's gotten tons of critical acclaim, many, many awards. And he's also shown his talent for adaptation through his collaboration with the Play on Shakespeare initiative and the Play on Podcasts. He was entrusted with the task of translating William Shakespeare's Love's Labor's Lost for a modern audience and bridged that gap between the timeless themes of the original text and the contemporary sensibilities of today. And we are all enjoying it now, listening to the Play On podcast series, Love's Labor's Lost. It is my honor to have Josh Wilder with me here today. Josh, welcome to the bonus content series for the Play On podcast series, Love's Labor's Lost. Uh, thanks for having me, Michael. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's great to have you. So how did you land on Love's Labor's Lost as your translation project in the Play on Shakespeare initiative? Ooh. Um, so it was like 2015. Uh, I was uh, about to start my first year uh, as a playwriting student at Yale. And uh, I, I was at the O'Neill Conference. Um, my play Leftovers uh, was, was selected to be, you know, one of the finalists for the uh, National Play Conference at the O'Neill. And I get a call from Louis Douthat, uh asking me if I was interested in doing a little outside grad school project by uh, uh, working on this translation. And, uh, you know, I really was nervous about doing it because when I was studying acting, I wasn't that good at really understanding Shakespeare. So I had this like pressure of, you know, wanting to do it to kind of like learn how to be better at understanding the text and you know just be a better writer in general so uh i took on the project i wanted to do othello so bad um but louis said love's labor's loss is like that's the one that you should do it's a comedy uh a lot of people haven't really read it so there's a uh sense of fresh eyes uh when the public 
will kind of uh, enjoy it. So that's kind of what happened. And I kind of took it on. So you were you were doing this while you were in your training at Yale for the three yeah. years that you were at Yale. You were doing the same this at the same time. Yes, I was working on this at the same time. So uh, on my off days, I will be working on the translation. Uh, one of the um, you know colleagues that's on the project, uh, Davina, who's the dramaturg, she also uh, was a student uh, in dramaturgy at Yale at the same time. So it was really a really good opportunity to kind of like connect what I was doing outside the classroom to what I'm doing inside the classroom. And I was always surrounded by students. I mean, this this play is a play about the academy. So, the it, you know, the perfect environment was there. Um, and we also uh, traveled to London. We would workshop the piece with student actors uh, from RADA on the piece, you know. So it was a constant workshop between students in America and students over in the UK. So you were it was like an ongoing practicum and you were getting input at that time throughout those three years from the best and the brightest uh, actors and dramaturgs throughout. What? Yeah, and it was brilliant because I really got to understand how Shakespeare worked in the mouths of actors in the UK versus, you know, in the US. I mean, there is a kind of a difference. Can you go um, into that? What, what was that difference? Well, the thing that I've learned is in the UK, the actors kind of stay on the line when it comes to performing Shakespeare. Uh, and then the, the emotion kind of hits as an after effect versus like the American, you know, acting method, you know, we're like more Stanislavski based. So we want to feel the line and then say the line, but it was the complete reverse engineering over in the UK. So it was really interesting seeing, you know, how I have to fit in between the middle do you have a preference? I mean, does something, does does acting on the line feel like it yields more fruit than the sort of going into the subtextual, you know, feel it in the pause type acting that Americans are sort of geared toward? You know, that's a good question. So uh, there's, what is it? There's value in both. <laughs> I don't want to pick one over the other. There's value in both. But for some reason the poetry kind of gets through to me a little bit faster when the actors are staying on the line mm. um, versus when we have to take that pause in America and really have to feel what's going on. Um, it also feels like, like church in a way. Um, there's like a heightened aspect to it that I like how we do it over here in America. I mean, I think that, you know, yeah, I, I, I kind of think that that's just what it is. There, there's just a different sense of captivating the melodrama that Shakespeare brings, you know, because folks are understanding old English. But most importantly, the thing that they grab on fastest to is the body language. So yeah. I think over here, you know, in the States, the body language is a little bit more bigger and expressive. Uh in my experience of watching Shakespeare, you know, that's been helping me understand. But I think studying the play as a writer was really helpful for me to understand what Shakespeare was talking about, what the story was doing. Um, that was the better lane for me versus being in the actor's seat, trying to understand what I was doing. Uh, this translation really helped me understand Love's Labor's Lost, but also understand Shakespearean text from more of a bird's eye point of view. And I think that was like the attack on the translation. 
how do we make this a bird's eye point of view while we're trying to figure out what the story is about? And then how do we kind of like zoom in on the characters as we uh, continue to, to work on it? Curious to know how the whole translation project went over in Britain when you were there. They take Shakespeare very, very seriously and they're almost religious about it, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious to know, did, were people like, what? What is this poppycock? You know, it was interesting because the main thing that was the argument was the context that I put Rosalind in, honestly. Um, the idea of Rosalind uh, being Black was something that was different because uh, it wasn't explicitly in the text yeah. it wasn't explicitly in shakespeare's text or it yes. wasn't and you like, made it explicit in yours yes i made it explicit in mine right i mean every you know the thing about this project is that um every playwright has their own spin on this you know everyone has to put their signature on this piece of work you know uh the ones that were the players that i admire they've all put their spin on this work and within the translation itself right so for me the spin that i wanted to put on this work was making rosalind black mm-hmm. and the, and the reason why i wanted to make rosalind black is because they talk about rosalind's features as very dark features mm-hmm. and for me when you know you know in like act four when they talk about how black rosalind is you know he, you know uh the king um says like, oh, your love is black as ebony. Mm-hmm. That for me is an indication of, oh, maybe Rosalind actually is a black woman because it's not like black women didn't exist in the court during those times. Mm-hmm. Uh, there also is a stage direction uh, towards the end of the play when they're doing the play within a play sequence. And um, it's in the original uh Shakespeare, I, I, I took it out of this translation, but there's a line that says, enter the Blackamoors. And when I looked that up and researched, like, who were the Blackamoors? Because that's a very explicit kind of like uh, name for, for, for a group. The Blackamoors uh, were Black musicians within the court. So it wasn't really far-fetched for me to, to think that, oh, maybe Black people did exist, you know, uh, in this context. It may not be, uh, they may not have their own plays like the other characters in Shakespeare's canon do, but they're a part of this world. Um, especially, you know, now that there, you know, there are books about, you know, who wrote Shakespeare, you know, so there's some theories that a black woman wrote Shakespeare, like one of his lovers wrote his plays or gave him the ideas for his plays. So it really, was, it really wasn't far-fetched for me to, you know, you know, con- uh, discern that, there were black people in Shakespeare's life in his life <laughs> and probably existed in his plays too. Right. That's where it kind of came from. And also the word fair, you know, what does fair actually mean? Uh, is there a specific definition to fair and why does the word fair have to equate to whiteness when it comes to the skin? Mm-hmm. You know, for me, fair is beauty. Fair is um, ethereal. Fair is all those things. And, that doesn't necessarily mean that fair equals white. So that was kind of the debate that we were having with the actors over in the UK. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but, but when we were working on the play in the US, 
you know, the group of actors that I was working with at Yale, most of them were people of color. Mm -hmm. So the debate was was vast. Um, and me and the dramaturg still fight to this day about <laughs> that word. Um, but you know, what is the fight? Can you what, what that thing about fair, the word fair, like what, right. what actually is the concrete reasoning as to why you think that Rosalind is black? And then my version was, well, why do you think the concrete reason that Rosalind is white? Mm -hmm. Because like I said, the characters are talking about Rosalind as if she is dark skinned. Right. Um, and as a black writer, I definitely wanted to put that spin on the on the work um, before we kind of set it um, at Howard uh, with our uh, podcast adaptation. So, yes. Let's so, talk about that, 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 that um, concept that you and uh, the director, Nelson UCBO III, came up with is, is just so brilliant. And listeners, if you're, if you're paying close attention, you're going to hear lots and lots of audio references to Howard University. Uh, you'll hear the school anthem being played by the marching band. You'll hear uh, references to actual physical locations that get peppered into the dialogue here and there by our uh, brilliant adapter, uh, Catherine Eaton. She found some things to sprinkle in. Uh, I would like to know, Josh, how you and Nelson arrived at this uh, decision to place it at Howard. So this... Um concept is is very personal to me so uh you know while i was working on this play uh, at yale i was also trying to figure out my ancestry you know uh trying to figure out where are my folks you know from beyond you know uh, america you know and i think everyone was kind of doing it and this isn't an ad for ancestry.com or anything like that but i did go on ancestry.com <laughs> we'll, we'll take <laughs> and, those sponsorship dollars ancestry yes ancestry.com please Yes. To play on Shakespeare. Yes. And um, what's really uh, interesting is that um, so I learned a lot about my father's side of the family um, on Ancestry.com. Um, my father's side kind of had the most documents and I got to, you know, really discover, you know, where my folks are from in Virginia. They're from Pocahontas Island, um, you know, which, which near like Petersburg. Uh, come to find out that, you know, they all, you know, uh, were free people of color because their father was white. And there was like this city state thing that was happening in Virginia. So there were some cities where, where you know, there was no slavery. Um, and there's places where there were, there's little pockets. It's all, all the stuff I was finding about, you know, life back then. Um, but, you know, because they were, you know, mulatto, you know, they had more privileges than, than uh, darker skinned African-Americans. And I found out that I was the descendant of a John Brantley Wilder. And John Brantley Wilder was a writer and an activist and a painter in Philadelphia. Um, and he actually was one of the editors of the Philadelphia Tribune. Um, he also has a collection of work at the Smithsonian Institute uh, that I have yet to see. Um, it's really getting in there for some reason, but uh, I so after kind of discovering my father's side of the family, um, and one thing that kind of stood out to me about about uh, my great grandfather is that back in the 1940s, he actually like did this crusade of getting all these uh, Hollywood executives to kind of sign a letter of support to represent black actors um, in different roles versus like maids and servants. So that was something like really kind of cool. Um, so I knew that 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 part of me was always uh, present 
But then when I discovered about my mother's side of the family, that's when things kind of began to really make sense as to why I'm in the theater. So um, growing up, my uh, my mother never knew her uh, father's like original, like his maiden name. Um, he was he was adopted. So uh, his last name was always Laguerre. You know, that's what that's that was my gra my grandmother's last name. So therefore, um, that'd be my grandfather's last name um, through adoption. But uh, she kept telling me, no, uh, my father's last name is Tavalier. It's Tavalier. And I was like, oh, that's very interesting. Like, I never heard of Tavalier as, as a last name. So when I went on Ancestry.com and you do your DNA matches, you know, they match you like, who's your cousin? Who's your fourth cousin? And I was looking on the DNA summary and it said that my second cousin and their last name was Tavernier. T-A-V-E-R-N-I-E-R. -E um, and I said, oh, maybe, maybe that's the real last name of, you know, my, my grandfather. And when I put two and two together and reached out to the folks who I like, matched with, um, and in addition to all the sleuthing that I was doing, um, my great-grandfather immigrated from Dominica, the island of Dominica, um, after liberation from the British. His name was Alfred Tavernier. And he immigrated to America through the Panama Canal. And he landed at Howard University studying law and studying theater. And he was the manager of the Howard Players um, in 1917. Huh. And the first, uh, and one of the productions that he produced uh, was The Merchant of Venice by William Shakespeare. So it was just really cool. Um, it was really cool you... knowing that my story kind of began there. <laughs> Wait, so so you discovered this through Ancestry.com mm -hmm. while you were working on the translation of Love's Labor's Lost as a student at Yale School of Drama. Mm-hmm these three things coincided as you did what i mean it was it's as if god came down out of the sky and anointed you and said you will be a theater practitioner you will be a <laughs> well it's interesting because it, it you know when it was just a big confirmation uh from the universe honestly um yeah. everything kind of made sense so as uh, I'm finding out all this about, you know, my great grandfather, you know, you know, years later, after, you know, we had the reading um, of the play uh, at, at Classic Stage in New York, after it had a production in Prague and a production um, at Theater Northeast, um, when this opportunity came around to kind of, you know, present the play in a different light. I just felt like the opportunity was 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 prime, you know. Mm -hmm. um, having this piece in audio is so 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 different, um, and I think because you get to be a little bit more imaginative uh, with the world sonically, and and I also just wanted to pay homage uh, to the relative that I never met, you know, someone who who clearly you know, pass this down to me. Um, so really, 
I don't know. It's in homage to him. That is just so, so perfectly Shakespearean, honestly. <laughs> the sort of the, you know, the the search for an identity in a way. I mean, because this is this is the the story that that you're telling me is you were you were trying to learn more about your identity, mm-hmm. and in doing so, you had a almost Shakespearean eureka reunion. It's it's so evocative of Twelfth Night and, you know, Viola and Sebastian separated at birth and finding each other, that that's sort of those types of themes that are so throughout all of Shakespeare. I'm curious to know um, how it sounds to you now. You, you say that the audio is so, so, so different. Um, can you go into that a little bit more, elaborate on what audio does to the story? For me, it kind of really sets the, it sets the world up. Um, You know, the setting that we have at Howard isn't just in 2023. I mean, it's during the era of reconstruction. It's during the era where, you know, black folks were truly conscious about how they want to be represented and how they want to represent themselves. Um, yes, there's like respectability policies involved. Um, yes, there is classism involved, but the fact that a class has risen from, you know, the historic disenfranchisement, and this was like an explosion of that. That's the thing that kind of makes me go like, wow, like. I have to hear it to really truly visualize it. Um, and that's also the challenge too. I mean, music, you know, you know, music was exploding, culture was exploding. Uh, the idea that there were black folks within the university, young black folks within the university, and they were flooding the gates and trying to build this new society this new reality for themselves and for their education you know all of that is just mixed in the the you know just the brilliance honestly of of the culture so and i think sonically it 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 kind of leans to that just last week just after we released episode uh what was it two or three this news came out about the supreme court deciding on affirmative action and this play being set at an H, HBCU, you know, at Howard University, and what you're describing now, and the sort of the um, explosion of of fervor at the at the period that this is set, I'm just curious to know how this decision lands for you, as an artist, as a scholar. Uh, you know, there's it's such an incredibly significant decision, and it and it just feels like it it needs to be talked about in the context of what we're doing. Yeah, you know, it's very very unfortunate um, that the Supreme Court just keeps walking backwards. Mm. Um, you know, being thirty three and you know only having what two presidents to elect, you know what I'm saying? Like that essentially uh, is kind of like a shift in, you know, 
the reality of 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 you know where my voter uh generation lies right um because you know i like to believe that I, i'm like the hope and change generation you know what i'm saying like i remember being very 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 excited about being a part of history and like electing our first black president and having you know and being part of this movement of change in america that that was ready to happen because i've studied it so much in history books that was your first your first presidential election was that was my first, pres- first yes first run yes mm-hmm. so 2008 i never forget i was in pittsburgh mm-hmm. uh, i was in school at the time um and i remember being in school at the time thinking that you know why do i feel like i'm not good enough to be here when mm-hmm. i auditioned out of thousands of people you know, and was chosen amongst thousands of people. Why do I still feel like I'm I'm not meant to be here? Um, so I understand the what Justice Jackson is talking about, you know, when it comes to, you know, the rules of life not being fair for everybody. Um, this and is also, uh, the Justice Jackson in her dissent on this. Yeah. Yeah, because like, yes, I definitely earned, you know, my spot in, in university. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to sit here and act like my spot within university wasn't questioned by my classmates, by my colleagues, you know, um, that was, you know, me going to college truly was my first real life, real time experience of like institutional racism, you know, uh, where people doubted my abilities, uh, because this, um, affirmative action thing was something that people can throw in your face. Mm. Um, so whether or not I was a direct benefit of that, the fact that that law, you know, is there is because people are discriminated based on their names. It doesn't have to be their resume. It can just be their names. So, uh, for someone who has a name like Josh Wilder, I mean, of course, my name kind of may or may not be picked up on, oh, this is a black name or a white name, just just a name. So I, when I think of affirmative action, I think of people who are getting denied access to opportunity on the basis of their name. And that's the, the, the reality um, of racism, right? When it comes to students trying to get an education. Um, But what a great opportunity to transmute that negative energy if you are a student at an HBCU, if you are a young person who was interested in in, uh, being a part of that history uh, of historically black colleges and universities. I think that what what, what a great moment for young people, young black people to look at, you know, their own institutions as safe spaces for learning. So that's kind of the the kind of the silver lining that I can try to glean from this. It may actually cause a sort of a reinvestment in the HBCU. Yeah, because you know I didn't go to HBCU. Um, you know I couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, I got scholarships to to Carnegie Mellon. I, it was a state school in Pennsylvania. Um, you know I'm, I'm from Philly, so there was more financial aid that was available for me going there versus going to debt to go to college. Um, and also, you know, with with Yale, I mean, 
that was something that I was kind of like pulled into. You know what I mean? Uh, it wasn't something that I was like searching for uh, actively. It was something that kind of, you know, found me. Um, so I definitely understand what Joanne Reed is saying as well about being pulled into Harvard. You know, be, you know, uh, affirmative action being something that actually like searches for the best and the brightest. Um, because if it wasn't for that, they wouldn't know if these if folks like me, folks like whoever existed. So the fact that that thing is being cut um, or being questioned or challenged in court, you know, is is, is kind of mind boggling to me. Um, but I do think that things will change. I, I mean, I do think that it won't be for long. Uh, something has to be kind of done about it um, because it, it's kind of crazy to to even do that in the first place. But but for this uh, world specifically, when it comes to this play, um, you know, these are black folks from all over the country, all over the world that are coming to study. And the fact that they were able to find love uh, and put on a pause, you know, is something that uh, I hope that audience will appreciate. This concludes part one of my interview with Josh Wilder. Be sure to listen next week to part two. You can learn more about the Play On podcast at Next Chapter Podcast's website, ncpodcasts.com. That's N as in next, C as in chapter, podcasts with an S at the end.com, where you can find other Play On podcast series and interviews, along with talk podcasts like The 500, The 10, Beef with Bridget Todd, and a whole lot more. I'd like to thank Jeremiah Tittle, the founder of Next Chapter Podcasts, and my producer, Pete Musto. Our audio engineer and editor is Justin Cortez. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcasts for updates on all the latest content. And don't forget to rate and review our shows. It really makes a difference. I'm Michael Goodfriend, and I look forward to sharing more incredible works in the Play On Podcast series with you, along with lots of enlightening bonus content at Next Chapter Podcasts. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Next Chapter Podcasts.